Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Muddy Musings. It's only our second episode of the year due to me being in Australia and living my best life, Peter being on Australian time and Scott just being in absentia. So <laughs> we we haven't been um, we haven't been the most uh, active over the past couple of weeks, but we're back and I am quite excited to say that we're back with a bang because we're joined by a very very special guest today. For anyone who has been a fan of Outlander, um, you will know exactly who this man is. We're joined today by Mr. Ian Fraser himself, Mr. Stephen Cree, uh, to everyone else. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, welcome to Money Musings HQ. It's uh, a bit quiet because Scott isn't here, but we do have Peter. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for that. A phenomenal intro and I'm just I'm only going purely for the sake of the surname slightly correct it a little bit the character no 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 my surname's correct but the um the character in it. It. no it's Ian Murray <laughs> yeah. it's Ian Murray I mean how could it be any more apt no but hey listen that's right, Jamie Fraser obviously is. I've got actually Ian Murray has got about a hundred middle names. Fraser might be in there somewhere. Um, you know what, but we'll, it's we'll, we'll we'll presume that it is, and I, I take full responsibility for that because my mind was just on our previous conversation where we were talking no, about hey, listen. your your brother-in-law, Jamie Fraser. <laughs> I, did, I didn't I didn't want to correct you. I just thought it would be I thought it was funny for the for the purposes of uh, Murray Musings. Of course. See, that this is it. I'm just, I, I'm not having, it's not been a great, a great start for me, has it? Peter, can you, can you make things better? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, uh, all I could input with that is you're the OG uh, uh, Murray. Is that correct? Correct. That's I correct. Yes. I, I, about that. I'm the OG Murray. And for some reason, uh, since I've, uh, I haven't been on the show for a few years and I came back I went back last year for a little bit to to do a little stint on season seven. And because my son in it is like when he first got cast, he was called, I was just Ian Murray and he was called Ian Murray Jr. or the young Ian Murray or something. But then like in all the press releases last year and any sort of stuff about returning cast, I've now been, my character's now called old Ian Murray. Uh-huh. Uh, like, <laughs> he's, he's not that fucking old uh, oh sorry i failed no go I'll, go ahead and swear I'll, if you want to i'll, I'll, okay, I'll try and keep I'll, I'll try and keep it to a minimum um we, we like the, to call andy old man murray so there you go okay you're old man fair, murray as well so i think i would take that as a compliment now fair enough fair enough <laughs> um uh so yes but i am the i am the og uh ian murray um, so before we uh, delve into the nitty gritty of another Murray, and we'll get Murray mm -hmm. right this time, Andy, and why we love him, um, why don't you tell us and our listeners uh, a bit about yourself and your acting career? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name's Stephen Cree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I grew up in a town called Kilmarnock um, in Scotland, which for reference point to... I assume that all the listeners of this must be Andy Murray fans. Uh, Kilmarnock is about, hmm, maybe it's about 60 miles from Dunblane, I guess. It's probably about 60 miles from Stirling, 
I'm not entirely uh, sure exactly. Um, and uh, I, yes, uh, I'm an actor. Uh, I've lived in London for 20 years. Um, uh, I've done all right. Um, and uh, and that's it. <laughs> Don't know what else to say. I've done a couple of musicals <laughs> in my time. This is the most modest description I've ever heard. I've done all right. Yeah, I've done not too bad. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. I think that's all that's... Um, that, that's all we need to know and we'll just go straight into Andy now. So um, we like to ask our guests what their tennis origin story is when mm. they join us. But I think mm. uh, for you, we'd like to know what is your Andy Murray origin story? So when did you first start following him and why? I mean, I guess I can, can sort of tie both of them up at the same time in a way that like I remember when I'm when I was a kid, uh, growing up in Kilmarnock, as I don't know if it's probably still the same as well. The like tennis, which is one of those sports that you know, if you play football as I did, you can you can get a football and go into the park and play football anywhere. But tennis wasn't quite the same. You know, you needed a well, you obviously you needed a racket, you needed balls, you needed somewhere to go and play it. And it was, and probably still is, I imagine. Uh, it was more of an expensive sport to play. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, and so we couldn't afford to go to the, you know, the local uh, tennis club. But weirdly, actually, up near the the local hospital, there were a couple of tennis courts. I mean, they were like gravel or something. I don't even know what they were. It's like a surface that no one plays on. Uh, and in the summers, I, like classic kid stuff, you know, I would watch Wimbledon uh, and then be up on those tennis courts. My mum would drop me off in the morning at like nine o'clock, and me and my mate would play the whole day uh, and I different actually it was my best friend when I was a kid and uh, he was quite good at tennis he actually used to he did used to be in a club and I don't think I, I used to be quite good at badminton but I was okay at tennis and we must have played hundreds of times and I never beat him once like not <laughs> once uh, I was very upset about that at the time um, and so I was like a huge you know every summer it was like when I first started it was um uh, uh, Jeremy Jeremy Bates uh, was the uh, Jeremy Bates. Is that his name? Jeremy Bateman. Suddenly forgot his name. Well, the the British. Right. Well, let's hold on. I'll just uh, I'll just Google that a second. <laughs> um, because obviously, as a kid, I used to just always think of him as Master Bates. Um, but <laughs> I can't. Yeah, Jeremy Bates. <laughs> Jeremy Bates. Does that? I'll, I'll just show you a photo there. Does that ring a bell? That's him. A bit older now. No, no, but I mean, Jenny, I, I, I don't remember any British players before Tim Heyman, I think, to be right. honest. Well, Jeremy Bates is a world ranking high of 54, according to this. And the best he got to in Wimbledon was the fourth round in 1992 and 1994. I'm on Google, by okay. the way. That's not from memory. And so, uh, yes, yeah, so I was 12 at that point. I was born in 1980. So he was a great British hope at that point. And obviously there was never any chance he was going to win a major, really, I think, with all due respect. So he might correct me on that, but it never felt like that. And then Tim Henman came along. And so it was like, OK, we can completely and utterly get behind Tim Henman. And I loved uh, uh, Tim Henman. And, you know, I obviously got to the semi that year against Ivanisevic and uh, rain, the rain delay, possibly, um, you know, knocked him off. Of course, of getting to the to the final, 
Uh, although I was a big Ivanisevic fan as well, so if anyone was going to when it was going to beat him, you know, it was better that it was him, I guess. And then Andy Murray uh, came on the scene, and it was. Uh, do you know what? I can't remember the very, very, very first time that I saw him play or was like totally aware, but it must have been round about when he was 16 or 17. He won, did he win the junior? He won the junior US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he? Yep. And it was like, yeah. And uh, so I was 24 at that point. And I think I remember reading about that and being like, oh, like we've got a phenomenal tennis player on our hands and even better. And listen, if he'd been English, Welsh or Irish, I'd have been yeah. so behind him. But I'm sorry, he was fucking yeah. Scottish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes. Because listen, I'm a Kilmarnock fan. My football team is Kilmarnock. We are not associated with reams of success. The Scottish football team isn't associated with any success. It's, it's the hope that kills you every time. <laughs> completely, completely. You know, um, even, you know, we've had some good golfers. We've had some great golfers. We've got some great golfers. Um, but it's just like we're, we've probably punched above our weight in many ways for a small nation, you know, with inventions and stuff over the years. But I can't think off the top of my head, you know, obviously, like, sorry, athletes, we've got Chris Hoy and stuff, so uh, great Olympic athletes. I was about to say, um, I can't think off the top of my head of how many, like, elite Scottish sports people that have been over the years. Of course I have. Um, but Andy Murray um, has become, I think, you know, for me, I'm obviously completely biased, but I think he's, like, the greatest British sporting person of all time. I'm sure loads of people mm-hmm. will think that's that's yeah. nonsense. Um, but it was just an added um, reason to get behind him uh, that he was uh, that he was Scottish, and I also just from the very st- and in fact, weirdly, I was having a text argument with a friend of mine earlier on, who's a big, 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 big tennis fan. I told him I was coming on to speak about Andy Murray tonight, and he's like a um, he, he's 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 British, he's English, but he's he's definitely more of like a Federer fan mm-hmm. or. Uh, which I still find, I find so bizarre, but that you're, you know, not because you're British, you have to support uh, British people, but he's he's one of these, I think, I think he's a wee bit of a tennis snob because he's kind of of this um, opinion that uh, because Andy shows his emotions on court and gets angry and swears and rails or whatever, he just doesn't like that. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's still c- kind of programmed into tennis as a gentleman's, gentlewoman's game mm. and you don't behave like that and I'm like but you know without Murray without McEnroe without Connors without Agassi um you know like it, it would just be so bland mm-hmm. uh, I think like you you want that and the argument always about Henman was he needs to show more fire why doesn't Henman show fire it's like he doesn't and I don't listen Tim Henman seems like a seems like a great guy maybe that's just not who not who he was. And then here we had this guy on the scene who not only was amazing and was, uh, you know, won, uh, won the the junior US Open, he he clearly had like real fire and grit and emotion right mm-hmm. from the start. And so I think I just sort of immediately tapped into all of that. And from the very, very start, I mean, how much older am I? Than Andy Murray. What age is Andy Murray? 35 now? 35, yeah. 
Okay, at Wimbledon, was it against Stepanesky or something? Ste Ste Stepanek or something? Um, he he had his, so I can't, I'm, I'm trying to recall, Wimbledon was, the the match for me at Wimbledon, when he first started playing in the professional tour in 2005, the, the one that always sticks out in my mind was when he played David Nalbandian, but I think that was round three, and he got the cramp in his thighs and he was rolling about the grass. Oh, that's right, he, that's right. He, he played... Before that, he played Queens. That was his, and he got his first ATP tour win. Right, and it was against a Swedish player, I think. Um, okay, whose whose name escapes me, but uh, Stepanek rings oh, a bell as well for something. I was, can't remember which match it was. Two thousand and five, Murray was eighteen years old, and he yep. beat uh, Stepanek was the fourteenth seed, and he beat him in three straight sets. Uh, and that was so. When was that? Two thousand and five. One of Wimbledon. Uh, Tiger, the, the headline. Tiger Tim is dead. Long live Andrew Murray. Uh, <laughs> blah blah blah. Uh, not only is Murray the only British player left in the draw. I can't remember. It doesn't say what. Oh, I think it was. I think it was the first round. It was that year. He says, "Hopefully they'll put me on centre. I'd love to play David Nalbandian in the third round." And it was that year. And he was the, yeah. that was a, yes. That was a year. Um, so I'd already been like I was already aware of him, but that was sort of almost confirmation mm -hmm. that okay, this guy, you know, is the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he he got um, I mean he actually got quite a lot of criticism after that match because people were saying he physically wasn't ready, mm. he couldn't mm. handle it. But you know he just he just kept on working, didn't he? And he went back and proved everyone wrong time and time again. I think you know as well that's a. That's a big reason that I loved him so much from the start as well. There was a strange backlash against him. Like even in Scotland, I remember it wasn't like people didn't instantly take to him. And you know, you could say that it's a that's some sort of strange British thing, but it was it surprised me even in Scotland that at first I still found people were sort of would support Federer over him or would support Nadal over him and sort of you know, would be put off by his, uh, you know, behaviour uh, mm. on, on court, which was all the stuff that was making me love him. I was like, also, I was like, this guy's 18 years old. Like, he's instantly got the pressure of decades of a nation on his shoulders, of like mm. being the first Wimbledon winner, maybe since Fred Perry. He's got to carry all that right from the start. And also, you're under this insane spotlight at such a young age out there I mean what I love about tennis and that's what I love about seeing him go through the mill well, I don't love seeing him go through the mill I'm sure it's not easy for him but seeing players go through that they're they're kind of out there for hours on end battling the other player battling their inner demons their their conflict the fact that in one point it can go from it looks like you're going to win the game easy and then there's one point in the whole thing just shift mm -hmm. and you see them having to try and you know hold it together so I I think the fact that there was any sort of criticism against them from the start just made me 
kind of be even more uh, on yeah. his side. Yeah. yeah, he didn't give off those sort of like typical tennis player vibes in the early days, did he? You know, like mm. scrawny, messy hair, clothes totally. that were three sizes too big for him, angry yeah. all the time. Yeah, it was, it was really funny. But again, I was the exact same. And I think you're you're kind of the same, Peter, aren't you? Like that was just yeah. all the, the more reason why you loved him. Yeah, the way his matches can turn on a dime, and especially when he's down and out. And I love underdogs, so, I mean, that's what made me a fan. Uh, what are your favorite uh, Andy Murray matches, and have you seen him live? Yeah, I've seen him live a few times. Uh-huh. Um, my two favorite, I mean, the two ma- the, my two favorite matches that I've seen live are, um, actually, so I, yes, I will. So to, just to touch on what you said there as well, but the underdog thing, I think that's what I, the, my friend, the, this friend in question, if he ever listens to this, uh, he, um, he, I remember he did, but somebody else I remember years ago, people were saying this as well about, you know, he's, he's not, he doesn't set a good example or he doesn't set a good, and I was like, hold on a second, like, look at the, at that point in the media, you know, in 2005, I don't, I don't read the tabloids, but I was definitely more aware of them back then. And you had people, you know, if you want to talk about people being an example, you know, younger people in the public eye, definitely not setting good examples. And here's this guy who's like sacrificed a lot of stuff from a very early age to dedicate himself. He knows that he's good at this sport, but if he dedicates everything, he can maybe be one of the best. And he's come through, like he came through so much even already in his teens. And actually, I think to have the mental fortitude as a teenager to be like, okay, I'm going to go off to Spain. Uh, I couldn't have done that at 14 or 15 years old. I think I would have been too scared uh, to to leave home. And then to find himself in an era where he's playing with three of the greatest players ever yep. and have to up his, and maybe that made him better, have to up his level even more, losing his first four majors, you know, and then like he had the whole nation against him because, well, the whole of England, certainly, because he made that joke about who would you rather win at the World Cup? And the journalist, the one time, the one time <laughs> and the journalist said, the journalist said, we knew it was a joke. It was completely a joke. But when he wrote it in black and white, he didn't point out that Murray was joking. So then that turned everyone else against him. And it took him to start crying when he got beat by Federer in that Wimbledon final for the nation. I, I was like, how, how is he not a good example? He's like, he's not on the front pages of the paper getting shit-faced, crawling out mm-hmm. of a club. He's at like, he's just quietly getting on with trying to be the best he can. It doesn't even actually genuinely seem to care what people think of him. Like as a parent, that's what I would say to my daughter: do your own thing. Don't 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 worry about what people think of you. He's in this, um, you know, in this media circus where he would sit and just be like, "Yeah, well, I don't know what you want me to say. I uh, I just finished the game, and uh, I don't know. I'm just here to play tennis. Is there anything else?" Okay, thanks. I love that. I feel like this. I'm I'm still far too concerned at this age about wanting to be liked or, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit it's difficult because it's a bit of part of my job. If people think you're shit continue as an actor, it's hard to get work. But by the same token, um, although you can still get work, weirdly. Um, <laughs> it, um, I definitely care too much about that. And particularly, I think if I was to impress stuff, I'd be worried about how I came across I was just like, this guy, to me, is setting an incredible example 
all the time. Um, and so to, to answer your question, sorry, Peter, um, the, the best two matches I've seen live, uh, the Davis Cup final um, in, uh, in Belgium. Um, oh, wow, in nice. Antwerp, was it? Is that yeah. what it was? Against Gent, sorry, Gent. Um, I was there for the first two days. I, I could only get tickets for the first two days. Uh, that was just electric. And probably, actually, I'm a big sporting fan in general, but I'm a big football fan. But I actually think the Davis Cup final is the best sporting atmosphere I've ever experienced. Yeah. It was... Uh, it was also, you know, it was quite, it was two or three days after there'd been a terrorist attack in Brussels. So there'd been a warning, actually, or sort of advised not to travel, but sort of figured well, there's hopefully not going to be another attack three days later. And, um, uh, you know, I didn't want to not go. And so me and my friends went over. Um, so that kind of maybe added a bit of tension. But the the atmosphere between the British and the Belgian fans was it quite spicy at the start of it. So you never really see that at tennis. And I love it, the Davis Cup, how after every single point, the crowd are like, yes, come on. <laughs> it's like from the very start of the game, mm -hmm. it feels like every point matters and they play the yeah. music. And listen, again, with all due respect to the rest of the British team, and he couldn't have done it without them. He sort of, I think, Bailey, and, you know, he won the Davis Cup and I don't think there's many other nations. And I think that, you know, Leon uh, Smith, the captain, and other players surely would concede that as well. Um, I, you know, I don't follow the Davis Cup closely every single year, but um, I don't know if there's many other nations where they had it, where he basically kind of dragged them through mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. that year. Yeah. I mean, didn't uh, he win all but one match throughout the entire yeah, 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 I think the, so. The, the entire campaign. Mm. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, yeah, Andy and Jamie together. Yeah. Just, I mean, the, the, I mean they really, for that, that year should have been called the Murray Cup because. Oh, completely. It Phenomenal. Was, it was totally them who won it. Phenomenal. And again, just like you should, like the, pa like the passion that he gave to that and the, the Olympics as well that there's never been any doubting i think he's obviously like a very very passionate scottish guy but he's clearly completely and utterly committed to the cause when it comes to the united kingdom playing as a team as well and then the other game probably uh was when i saw him beat uh djokovic at the atp tournament at the o2 to become world number one nice. oh wow or was it to, or was Didn't it that... was it to was it to Didn't... solidify or was it to become? I think that was to become world number one. It was to, to become, to, yeah, yeah, year end, yeah, yeah. year end world number one, yeah. And uh, I went along with my friend Tarek, who's a big, big, big. He used my friend Tarek used to work at Queens. Um, I yes. saw Andy win. I saw Andy win the Stella Artois uh, once as well. That was great, but it wasn't. Uh, I can't remember who he was playing in the final, but whoever he was playing, he was expected to win. Whereas mm -hmm. I remember going to the, we got tickets and it was really expensive. And we were like, should we do this? And we're like, this could be a once in a lifetime, you know, let's, so we managed to get a couple of tickets. And again, the atmosphere at the, at the O2 for the Masters games was brilliant as well. And he went into, he'd, he'd had that crazy winning streak. He'd, he'd mm -hmm. had to win something like 37 or 38 games or something to get the, the amount of ranking points. 
and Djokovic was still flying at that point as well. So you went into it not knowing, you know, which way is this going to go? And Andy just utterly blew him off the court for two sets. Yeah. Like it did not, almost to the point where it was like, it wasn't, it was phenomenal, but it was almost too easy. It was like, oh, yeah. this is like, this isn't the usual, uh, you know, battle. Uh, that we mm-hmm. kind of get accustomed to to seeing him. He just absolutely blew him away. And then I think actually after that, I think the year after that, that's when his big, big injury problems started yeah. Yeah. as well, which is such a shame because he was clearly just so at the top, you know, at the top of his game. Although maybe it was the, maybe it was that monumental push that kind of brought on some of the injuries as well. I don't know. Yeah, I think, um, I think it was the, it did. Twenty sixteen was definitely, I think, what sort of pushed his hip to its absolute limits. Mm. And then he reflects on Peter. You'll um, correct me if I'm wrong here as well. Was it the, he said it was the twenty seventeen French Open semi final against yeah. Vavrinka. Yep. Is that yep. right? That but that's when he really felt like th- there was a turning point in his physical ability because oh, really? he, he he felt that match in particular, he came off court barely able to walk and knowing then that there was a serious problem. Something that maybe he'd sort of like just felt as a niggle like up mm. until then and that he, you know, kind of worked through it. And he said it was when he came off court then that's when he knew that there was something really wrong. Mm. Um, so, you know, we could, we could, some people say Blaine Lendl for his um, hardcore training in 2016. I personally say Blaine Vavrinka. I guess it must yeah. be a genetic thing. My brother's actually had the same operation as Andy. My brother's had his hip resurfaced oh, really? uh, as well. And in my brother's case, it wasn't due to being uh, an elite level athlete or tennis player, but... He's just had a sort of genetic thing that is, um, he's had problems uh, with his um, hip and stuff kind of since he was a kid. And so he had to get, uh, he had, I think, yeah, it was more or less exactly the same, uh, the same operation. And I have to say, my brother definitely does not move as well about as Andy does. I mean, Andy's Um, moving about now like a man 10 years his junior, isn't he? I mean, it's just incredible. And I wonder, this is like, is there a part? I wonder if there's a part of him when to have to have been so in his prime at that point, and then to have to go through that injury. How much of him is is there any part of him that is aggrieved by that, or does he look back and think, well, I've 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 had a fantastic career anyway and so there's no point in thinking about what could have happened or what if or because it did happen and is there any I wonder if he like does he I wonder if he thinks he could win a major again now or or even like win a big tournament mm-hmm. you know winning a major is um winning a major when Djokovic is is still about like even when you're at your complete full fitness mm-hmm was fucking hard yeah so I wonder what or does he just he clearly just absolutely still loves it and why would you want to give this up any earlier uh, than you have to but 
Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes it must be to be to to know that you're so, you know, when he was playing um, uh, a good August uh, um, uh, Batista, uh, is it Batista Agut? Is that how you pronounce yeah. his name? Uh-huh. In the Australian Open, my friend who I always argue with about Murray, the one in question, you know, I was texting him and I said, it just annoys me because if this had been like several years ago, Murray would have just, this would have been like pretty straight first within a straightforward victory into the next round. And my mate was mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know. Agut's always been, and I was like, shut up. I mean, well, Agut's, <laughs> He's only he's beaten him. What I think they head they haven't played each other that many times. The head to head is three four in a good favor, but mm. I I think the four times that he's beaten him has been post injury. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, certainly, certainly two of them are without a shadow of a doubt, um, yeah. because there was the one at the Australian Open before. Yeah, when so when, when, he, when he thought he was going to retire, yeah. Agut's obviously a fantastic player, but you know the Australian Open in particular. It's a, that's a, I think that's such a it's a crime that Andy didn't win that. Like at oh. least twice, yeah. I think there are two finals in particular where I thought, and the French Open as well, actually, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I thought it's so. That's again that thing I thought, I thought it was so going in his favour, and uh, and then it just sort of changes my my you know this is. My friend's argument in question with this is that it's because he he thinks that because Andy gets so worked up and gets so angry on court that that knocks him off his stride sometimes. I don't know. I mean, I would argue that that clearly helps him get back on his stride sometimes um, as well. Um, yeah. The margins at the top must be, you know, tiny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, and it, it can go either way with Andy I think sometimes when you watch him play when you start to see the shoulder slump like he yeah. sort of like his shoulder slump forward and he throws his head down I think that's when as a fan you would I start getting worried that he's mm. kind of stopped believing in his ability to win the game but yeah. as long as he's continually fist pumping which he just did constantly in Australia mm. I, he still absolutely believes and I think he I think he believes he can win a tournament again like mm. I mean I, I think if people have asked him like you think you can win a major he's very quite he's quite coy about it you know he doesn't want to commit to saying yeah I absolutely can and he also doesn't want to go on record to saying no I can't but I think he I think he believes he can when I think why, listen, not? why wouldn't you if he hadn't if he hadn't beat Kokonakis at like such a ridiculous hour of the day Maybe he could if he did like one extra day's rest. And even yeah. the thing with Andy, it's always hard to tell. Like against Kokonakis, like half that, like for 50% of Andy's games, he, even before the injury, he looks like he's slumping about. He looks like mm-hmm. he's fucking knackered. He looks like he's in pain. And you're like, oh no, he's done. Yeah. And then suddenly he just kicks back in. So I don't know if that's part of his thing. If it's like, if it's part of, if, if it's just, you know, it clearly is just, just part of his thing, not, not an act, but. It's just his sort of general demeanor. You quite often think, but I, I, I don't know. I don't like, I mean, I just can't, I find it difficult when people like my friend or, or the media or whatever, when, when people have like criticized his uh, mental strength or, or mental fortitude around that sort of stuff, because you're like, he clearly, you cannot question that guy's mental strength at mm-hmm. all. I mean, he's one, two, the, the two of them. 
the two Olympics, the, the two Olympic golds that he won that game, that game against um, uh, Del Potro. Del Potro. Del Potro that's possibly amazing. that's possibly one of the greatest games. I was on my honeymoon in Santorini actually with my wife, and um, well, obviously with my well, not not, not necessarily obviously, but and we <laughs> uh, we were oh, I can't remember we're in the middle of the island somewhere, and I was working at the time, and I was like, can we get back to the hotel so I can watch the game? Please, and she actually, funny enough, at our wedding, uh, in her speech, she said, you know, I'm, I'm actually really, I can't remember how she put it, but she said something like, of course, like, Stephen does have another greatest love <laughs> of, his, of his life, who sadly couldn't be here today. And I was like, what the, what the fuck is this? <laughs> uh, and she was Andy Murray, um, who, so um, she um, she knows that the, my my dedication has always been there, and so we, we man, I I had to, I was one of those things. I was streaming it on my phone because it wasn't working on the TV, and then it kept going off on my phone, and then it would come back on on the TV, and eventually I managed to like get it to get it to stick. But uh, that that actually makes the games all the more fun as well when you're away somewhere random mm-hmm. and you're having to try and you know watch them on the hop. It kind of That's adds cool. to the excitement. That's really funny, Stephen, because um, so you're on your honeymoon when Andy won his gold medal uh, in Rio, and I was on my honeymoon when he won his first Grand Slam um, at the US. Oh Open. wow! Yes, yeah. And oh, wow. it was it was it was literally the first night of our honeymoon, and I was, I was like, no, we're not going to happy ever. <laughs> we're not doing anything. This is what we're doing. My husband was just like, what have I signed up for here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We're, when he won Wimbledon for the first time, I was doing uh, Macbeth in Manchester, and we were rehear- the the place that. So we'd been speaking the whole. There was a guy in the cast who was a big tennis fan as well, Ray Firon, um, and Ray was a, again like a big Federer fan, and he was just like, "No way, no way is Murray going to do it this year." And I was like, "I bet I will bet you a thousand pounds." That Murray's going to win this year. I'm telling you. I was like, he won the. It was you know he'd won the Olympics uh, the year before. Uh, was it? Yeah. When did he win the Olympics? 2012, and then he won Wimbledon in 2013. Yeah. Um, I think, and um, I was like, I just think he's got the beating of Federer now, like beating him in that Olympic final. And Ray was like, Ah, Ray, Federer didn't care about the Olympics. I was like, Yes, he did. Of course he did. <laughs> he don't get to an Olympic. Course, he's Federer. And also, I was like, Federer was only actually considered really happy and like, you know, really sort of easy going because he won all the time. When Federer started getting beat by Nadal, you saw a different side of him. It's funny, I've got such a different take on Federer. Clearly he's a phenomenal tennis player. Phenomenal. I mean, there's no doubting that. And he, you know, he he would glide about on court like a swan. He never sweated. His hair was never out of place. I just find that boring. I'm like, so what? I want to see sweat. I want to see blood. I want to see somebody swearing. I want to see somebody lose their temper. And actually, I found Federer a bit, I found him a bit arrogant. I didn't think he was like super nice. I just thought he was, you know, uh, he had, a, you know, he, he kind of had the beating of everyone until until Nadal uh, mm-hmm. came along. Anyway, um, I'm sure he's a great guy. Uh, yeah, he actually, and, uh, he actually is really nice. I'm I, sure he is. I felt, I'm the, sure he I felt is. the exact same as you. I was like, no, I don't. This guy's arrogant. Like, there's something about a bit of a sore loser. I thought mm. when you know when like when I he thought he was a sore loser. 
I yeah. always thought that he never he gave Andy like, credit. No, it was always I didn't play well enough rather than totally. my opponent played better than me. And I was always like, mm. but I actually met him after he won the 2017 Australian Open. I met him at the airport. And maybe it was because he just won and he was absolutely buzzing off his tits, but he was such a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. He was just, I felt really, really bad for all the time. I was like, oh, he's such an arrogant torag. <laughs> I'm sure he is. And I think when you saw that reaction that Nadal had at his retirement thing, they clearly love each other and they clearly have a lot of respect. I just always thought Nadal, whenever Nadal lost, Nadal was always good at being like, you know, uh, not that, you know, and Andy had a great record against Nadal for a while as well, didn't he? Mm -hmm. um, he would, um, I thought, I always thought Nadal was very gracious uh, in defeat. The only time I've ever really, 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 really got behind Roger was at that Australian Open final when he was the underdog. And then, it's like when they, you know, then I was like, right, okay, I really want you to win and create history now. Mm -hmm. Um but, uh, yeah, so we were doing Macbeth, and uh, I was saying to Ray, I was like, I'll bet you a £1,000. And I don't gamble, by the way. Like, so I was like, but I was so sure. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not doing it. I was like, okay. But, if, I mean, you're sure that Andy's never going to do it. And then we get, we went to Manchester for the to do the show, and the place where the theatre was on was on Murray Street. And that's I was like, that's a sign. Like, we're doing Macbeth <laughs> on Murray Street. This is like, this is an absolute sign. And he got to the final and theatre is very rarely on, on a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. And for mm -hmm. some fucking reason, this show was on on a Sunday <laughs> at three o'clock. <laughs> so I was just going to see my bed at three o'clock on a Sunday. On Murray Street. <laughs> so I had my phone and a computer backstage set up and literally would be on stage Blah, 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 run off stage, <laughs> watching the computer, like waiting till the last second and then got back off. And unfortunately, the show finished just in time to, uh, I got like, I, I kind of ran home watching my phone and got home for like the last half hour uh, of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, That's amazing. Day. Yeah. I was like, so, okay, kind of in a way again, it made it more, it's, it's kind of made the memory stronger. Yeah, because you, you remember everything else that was associated with it as well. Yeah, yeah. That that was a that was a great match. Speaking of, you mentioned um Kokanakis earlier mm -hmm. on. What did you think of Andy's performance in Australia overall? It just kind of, you know what, it brought back the it brought back all those memories and all those feelings that I had had that I've associated with supporting him since 2004 or 2005. Um, I mean, I haven't gone as far to Australia as you have. Like, I'm a pretty, you know, I've been to uh, Italy, Brussels, um, you know, various places uh, in Britain. My, I, I feel like I've seen him play. I've been lucky. I've been fortunate enough to see to, to see him play live quite a few times. But most of my supporting has been done, like, uh, in the living room, uh, mm -hmm. shouting at the TV and. I can't remember if it was, it must have been Facebook because I don't think I was on Twitter. I remember Facebook at the end of each year would tell you like what words you'd use the most. And like for about three or four years in a row, the three words I had used the most were come on, Murray. Because <laughs> that was just a nice Facebook status update all the time. So I think particularly when I was younger and I wasn't, I didn't, I've, you know, I've got a five year old daughter now, I'm married and when I was younger in my acting career, wasn't there was like a long phase where my acting career, I wasn't really getting any acting work. So I was working in restaurants and 
bars and offices and stuff. And so I think even more so when the majors and stuff were coming around, it was like, that was such my sole focus. And I was so invested. I remember one year, I think it was 2008, Roddick beat him in the quarters or something like that at Wimbledon. And again, it was one of these games where uh, Andy looked like he was going to win. Andy was playing brilliantly in Roddick. But Roddick was still probably like about world number two or something. And uh, and Roddick managed to beat him. Uh, and I just remember being like, I was, I, I felt fucking devastated. And my mate that I was watching it with at the time was like, it's not that bad. It's all right. You know, I was like, you don't get it. Mm-hmm, you, just, mm-hmm. you just don't get it. And it would deflate me like for the rest of the week or whatever. And then I think in the last like sort of five years, because I didn't, I just, my life got busier, you know, and getting married and having a kid and uh, having a kid and not getting married so much, but having a kid uh, in particular uh, and my career has just been busier. And I've been, you know, I, I, I found that I, I was still watching everything, but um, if you lost, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't destroying me. Uh, mm-hmm. In quite the same, uh, in quite the same way. Although the last time, the last final, was it the? What was the last major final they lost? Was it the Australian or was it the French? Um, it would be the, the French, it, wouldn't was it? Was it the French against yeah. Djokovic? Yeah. Uh, I was, um, I was pretty gutted um, about that, but that watching the Australian there kind of brought all that back again, like being up. Because uh, I remember getting like the 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 last Australian Open he was in. Uh, my wife and I were away for the weekend at this place called Monkey World mm-hmm. down in down in Dorset, which is amazing actually. And I I booked it like in advance, and then I was like, and we stayed in a B and B or something. And then as it was coming up to it, I was like, oh fuck! I was like, that's the weekend of the Australian Open final. I was like, shit. And Andy's probably like was looking like he wouldn't, and he got into it. Like a couple of days before, I was like, "Look, I'm really sorry, but like on the Sunday morning, I have to kind of like reserve at least five hours <laughs> to watch yep. <laughs> to watch the match." And the night before, my wife got really sick, oh, and so no. we had to go to bed early anyway. But it was a sort of double-edged sword because on the like when in the Sunday morning, she was still so ill; she just had to stay in bed. So it was like I sort of was a really dutiful husband and just left her and went away and watched the test for five hours. <laughs> and that I'm, I'm certain that was one of those finals as well, where he looked so in control. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, he obviously didn't win. And obviously Djokovic's record at the Australian Open is incredible, but mm-hmm. um, that kind of, the, yeah, that, the, you know, when I was, because I was tweeting as well and just getting involved in those, and the tweets again and interacting with other Murray fans, uh, like on social media and the, just that, I mean, that Kokonakis victory. Well, they even just took it. What was the, um, who was it in the first round? Beratini. It was Kokonakis the first, yeah, right. Berrettini first round. Berrettini. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Berrettini's a great player, but again, mm-hmm. I think these players, when Murray when he's, was in his absolute pomp, I don't think they would have. But when the chance. It wouldn't have stood a chance, and Berrettini's good. But so even that first round match, but in the Kokonakis match in particular, it was just like, you know, the the drama that comes up from sport, you can't create that, excuse me, um, in, in anything else. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did like he, he he did great against a good as well, but unfortunately, it was probably just, um, you know, too soon or another long match too soon after, you know, after after yeah. the other ones. Well, I at the end of the at the end of the um the match against Batista Goodwin, you know, he's like screaming over the net and Andy's face and he's screaming around at his box and like fist pumping and everything. I was actually sitting like five rows behind his box during that oh, match. Wow. And I was texting Peter and Scott and I was like, this is awful because I've got like, I've literally got his team sitting in front of me. And I was like, do you know what? The guy's like celebrating. He's just beaten a man who's been on court for 7,000 hours He's mm. had 5,000 blisters on his feet and he's only got one hip. So, you know, if you want to cheer about that, <laughs> go for your life. Not, not be sitting there being really bitten, like giving daggers to his team. <laughs> Listen, that actually also shows as well what it's, it's like, you know, if I can use a, a football, like for, for me, I don't know, you maybe won't get this, Peter, but if you're a, you know, if you're a supporter of any small team, like for me, Kilmarnock, if Kilmarnock beat Celtic or Rangers, it's always huge because we're not expected mm-hmm. to beat them. So for some, and Batista Gut is clearly a very, 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 very good tennis player. But beating Andy Murray uh, at a major as well is is a feather in your cap. I mean, Andy's, yeah. I don't think, I, for me, and I like, Forget about the major numbers or whatever, but you can include them as well. Andy's, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the all-time greats. I, you know, I'm clearly I'm completely and utterly biased, but I think that's a, I, I think that's fairly, um, easily argued. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true and accepted now. Um, how are you feeling about the rest of the season for him? I'm really interested to see. Um, you know, I'm really interested to see what lies ahead now and what he can do. And like I said, you know, the last kind of obviously, you know, with COVID and stuff, so things have been all over the place. But my mate that I went to the uh, to the Davis Cup final with, I went to uh, been to Wimbledon with him as well. He's a big, 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 big Murray fan, also. And you know, we text all the time about it. And in the last couple of years, when we've been texting. He was, you know, he was like watching a Murray match somewhere, and he was like, "Are you watching?" I was like, "Oh, I can't right now because I'm, I'm here or I'm doing this." I noticed that I, I was, um, like in the past, nothing. Listen, if it's a big game, nothing still will get in the way. But in the past, nothing would have got in the way of making sure I could, uh, I could tune in. And I think um, I'm interested. Like, you know, he got he got interviewed after it, didn't he? And he said he thinks he can go further and he mm. thinks he can go deeper into yep. a slam. Um, and listen, he's always done. I, will he do that? What do you think? Will he do the French? I mean, I think he probably will. I wonder if maybe he won't to save himself for Wimbledon because he definitely cannot. If he's still, if he's as fit in the summer as he was in January there and he gets a decent, and this is the thing as well. Hopefully, he can start getting deeper into the tournaments as well. If it, so, his his ranking can go higher mm-hmm. because yeah. if he can get a favourable draw at Wimbledon, like you could yeah. definitely see the quarters or the, or the you know something there. Or yeah, I think see depending on how he does over the next couple of months. So we've got 
you know the American hardcore season. Um, yeah. Like he'll he'll play Indian Wells, he'll play Miami. I think depends on how he does in those two tournaments. Might make his decision over the clay season. Um, mm. Like if he feels like he really needs to get more ranking points, he might play more clay tournaments. Mm. But if he does quite well and gets his points up, he might only play one warm-up tournament and then maybe do the French. Um, because I think his goal will be to get seeded for Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. If he can get if he can get that one of the top thirty-two spots, then that makes his chances of making it to the second week much, much higher because he won't meet another seed until at least maybe the third round, possibly the fourth. So yeah, um, yeah, I think I think it depends on what happens over the next like eight weeks or so. I think that's fair. I mean, that's particularly exciting. The prospect of him maybe being even fitter, uh, yeah. you know, depending on how his body holds up as well. But to be the f- uh, the fittest Andy Murray has, you know, physically been in the last few years at the start of a grass court season is definitely exciting. And it's interesting now as well, because I think for the first time, it feels like, like it, it still felt for really until fairly recently that it's Djokovic, Nadal or Federer. And actually, it still feels really like it's Djokovic or Nadal. But and Djokovic does seem to be uh, a fairly unstoppable force for the time being. Nadal's obviously struggling more and more now with injuries. But there are some cracking young players coming through now. So like Kaspar Ruud uh, is obviously uh, knocking at the door. Um, uh, uh, I can never pronounce his name correctly. Titsipas. See, yeah. is, it, is, it, is, it, is it pass? Is it? Yeah, I, I always say pass. Titsipas, and and I don't know if I say pass. it right or not. I, I'm absolutely yeah, sure. I'm never. I'm, never, I'm never sure either. I think it's Titsipas. Uh, I think you. I think you said uh, definitely right. I'm. I'm. I'm the one that's wrong here. Um, Medvedev, um, is obviously. I don't know how he how good he is on grass. Uh, right enough. Um, uh, and I can't pronounce it. Uh, Oxer Felix. Yeah. Oje Aliasim, I think. Oje Aliasim. Oje Canadian. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as well. He's obviously going to be a big, is a big talent. So there's, there's definitely more, uh, you know, difficult, difficult opponents coming up mm-hmm. now as well. Well, Andy's going to be playing. Um, Alcaraz. Jeez, God, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Alcaraz is amazing. I mean, that's in. Saying that who knows what he's going to go on and do, but in an era where we're just kind of like coming to the end, if we want to liken him to Nadal, why not? Like it, it's insane that there's somebody on the scene who who actually has the potential mm-hmm. to be as good as the best players ever that are just leaving the scene. Yeah, yeah. It seems like he's finally someone mm. who might be able to to replace. Them yeah, yeah. because so, so far I I'm kind of struggling to find someone who's really going to be that level of like yeah. the big three. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think he's probably he is probably the guy. And I actually I feel like Alcaraz is like the Spanish Djokovic because I feel like his playing style is more similar to Djokovic than it is to Nadal. Mm. But mm. because he's Spanish, people yeah, give, yeah. give the, the Rafa comparisons. Mm. Um. But yeah, I, I like him a lot. I'm looking forward to seeing 
hopefully if he stays injury free. It's what funny we talk about. I, I always used to I always used to argue, and I still maintain this. And it's I'm not. I wonder what Mark Petsche actually would say uh, about this. I'm obviously not a tennis expert at all, but I always thought over the years that Murray was every bit as good as Djokovic because in, t- in terms of like playing style, it was different against Federer and it was different against Nadal. They had such different playing styles to him, whereas Djokovic was is known as like a phenomenal returner as well. Djokovic's serve has obviously been a bit more consistent than Murray's. I guess that's one thing, but th- there was more of a similarity with them in the they would always just keep, you just had to, like, they weren't necessarily going to be the ones that would make a mistake. They would just keep getting mm. the ball in again and again mm. and again. Whereas Nadal just, like, fucking fires it through you. Uh, mm. And, yeah. you know, Federer's just, like, was Federer. But I always thought Murray was every bit as good as Djokovic, and the only difference was, and maybe it is, you know, maybe like, in those big, in those, in those moments in the Australian or whatever, Djokovic did seem to be able to kind of centre himself a bit more mm-hmm. or keep his... And I, I'm I'm hesitant to say that because I don't want in any way that to be a criticism because I just think that what he's achieved is so uh, phenomenal. But I remember Kyrgios actually said like three years ago or something that he thought Murray was better uh, than Djokovic. Or was def- I can't remember the quote, but he said something like he's better than or he's every bit as good as Djokovic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. right, well, that's coming from somebody um, who obviously uh, does know about tennis and knows what it's like to play against the top players mm-hmm. uh, as well. So it just shows those those margins at the top are so, like, tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah like you say, one point, yeah, one point can take it either way. Um, yeah, I still, I mean, those five Australian Open finals, four of them against Djokovic, of course, I still just think... That's that Novak ruined my life. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I hated him. I mean, my, it's funny how unpopular. I don't know what he's like on the on the tour. What the players think of him? I wonder. But it's interesting. Well, I've actually, you know, I, I, I hear things, but I don't know what what is true. But um, it's interesting that he's now like the joint uh, record holder of the most majors ever, and he's kind of so. Even before the COVID debacle and stuff, he just doesn't have the popularity at all. Mm-hmm. And much as I always really wanted to hate him because he kept beating Murray, <laughs> and I was like, it was very easy to hate him. I did mm-hmm. always think he seems like quite a good guy, though. He seemed, I was like, he seems quite funny. <laughs> he seems charming. I remember that like, at a lot of different tournaments, he'll start speaking in the language of the country. That he's in, he's like you know, so he, he can relate to the fans on that level, but he just doesn't seem to. Um, he's never he's never had that connection with the with the fans in the same way that Nadal or Federer or or, or Murray mm-hmm. has. I don't if, think if if Scott was here right now, Scott would be defending Djokovic's honor to the death. Scott is a massive, he's a massive, massive Novak fan. Um, Peter is just sitting here with a, I can see the wry smile on his face. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want to be too saying. negative about Novak, but uh, again, like we're saying, the Australian Open has scarred me from how I feel about uh, Novak, um, among other things um, <laughs> that he's done lately. So yeah. uh, I'll just yeah. say that. 
yeah. yeah. No, no, fair enough. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that we can avoid Novak until at least a final when Andy's got his confidence soaring high. If we can avoid him in any tournaments until we reach the final, that'd be great. I know. I know, I know. I mean, it would be like on one hand, it would be great to see him play Novak again, but um, that, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'd, I, I'd love to, I wonder what Andy does think about that stuff, because certainly as a fan from the outside, mm-hmm. I look at it and think it's, I, I can't help but think, what if, you know, and it's annoying that you can't meet Novak again where they're both still on, you know, exactly the same this is the thing because I feel like Novak is aging backwards. You know, like he's mm. just—I I don't know what he's doing with his body, but it's incredible. And he just doesn't seem to slow down. He doesn't seem to get tired. Even when you think maybe like he's maybe shaking a wee bit, he's just—he pulls himself back together totally. and goes out there and plays incredible tennis. And yeah, I—I I don't know. I think it would take. A lot. I don't think if anyone's going to beat him, it'll be Andy, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. He's got, he's got a very specific, it sounds like Djokovic has got a very specific lifestyle, doesn't it? With his diet and um, his, uh, the way he, he really, really does sound like he treats his body like a temple. Yeah. I just don't know how yeah. he finds joy. No. no. Like, I know. he doesn't, he yeah. doesn't drink, he doesn't eat mm. sugar, he's gluten free. Yeah. Like, it must suck. <laughs> Although he just like he bangs on about that quite a lot. Uh, clearly, Murray must take serious care of his body uh, mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I don't know if he's got a Scottish diet behind closed doors and is into the fish suppers and um, you know pickled eggs or whatever. But or pickled eggs probably aren't bad for you. He what was it? He once said that I think he said his favourite food was sushi. So okay. I can't I can't picture I, I can't picture him talking into a fish supper. No, I, I think he's but, he's without a doubt he's like I don't know how these guys do it as well like I've got one kid and trying to juggle my like as I work away from home sometimes as well when I'm filming or whatever and trying to juggle all that is really tough I do not know how tennis players and he's got four kids now mm-hmm. uh, I mean I'm sure yeah. they have a lot of help and I don't know what the setup is with with Kim or whatever but but that's a it's a big sacrifice as well you know that you're missing. A lot, and he seems like a very, very dedicated family guy as well. You're missing a lot mm-hmm. of time with your family and with your kids being away from home and jumping from time zone to time zone to time zone to time zone. I, 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 I don't know how they they do it. I think it must be a, um, again that sort of mental aspect because I find when I'm working away from home and we're traveling a lot, people from the outside are like, "Oh, that." I was working in Barcelona last year. And people like, oh, it must be really glamorous. It's really exciting. And there's an aspect of it, of course, which is fortunate and kind of is if you do any traveling as well. Like traveling is exciting, but by the same token, you're you're in hotel rooms, you're away from your family. It can get lonely. It can get boring. It can get laborious. It's you know it's difficult as well. Sometimes I've been away from home, and my daughter was in hospital one time, and I couldn't get back at, at mm-hmm. first. Um, it's uh, I think now, like when I was younger, I would never have appreciated that stuff. But now that I'm older. And with these people, with, you know, the tennis players that have got families as well, I'm just like, how mm-hmm. the fuck do you juggle all yeah. that? And it's clearly the desire to still want to do it for him is huge. Well, I think you know? I think that's it. And it's like you said earlier on, he clearly still loves it so much. And he wouldn't keep doing it. He wouldn't keep, you know, 
been away from his family for such long periods of time if he didn't absolutely love what he does so mm. yeah you know he, he, he doesn't he's just I mean I, I could wax lyrical for hours and hours and hours <laughs> about how amazing Andy is and I know Peter can do the same but we'll um we'll try and, and, and wrap things up soon um but we're just we're going to do a couple of quick fire questions uh mm-hmm. for you number one is Wimbledon the best movie that's ever been made um do you know what I haven't I, this is bizarre I haven't seen Wimbledon you've never and seen actually, Wimbledon oh. no and which is weird for two reasons because I'm very good friends with James McAvoy uh who's in it oh, okay. um, J- James was a year above me at drama school and um I feel like I've seen like you know because James has done so many great films I feel like I've seen a lot of James's films mm-hmm. and I haven't seen uh Wimbledon and as like a massive tennis fan I think actually he I think partly I think because he I don't think he was hugely uh I don't think he massively sung its praises uh mm-hmm. which maybe he stopped me from seeing it and I think maybe I've just heard that it's not that great it's, so it's actually working. like it's one of those films it's it's truly terrible but it's amazing right Okay, you know, right. yeah, uh, because yeah. it's, it's yeah. got such a good cast in it, and actually yeah. James McAvoy is amazing and he's so funny. Mm. Um, yeah. I would I would recommend watching it just for the experience, and then you I'm can going to, to you know and let us know what I you think. I will. <laughs> I will watch it now just for that. <laughs> and Peter, you want to ask the next one? Okay. Um. So uh, I would love to know uh, your tennis walk-on song. Like, if you had a song to pump you up, what would that be? <laughs> I mean, the first, I don't know if this would be it, but the first song that popped into my head is it's all coming back to me now, the meatloaf yeah. version. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Celine Dion for a minute. I was like, no, that's no, no, where no, no, I no, was no. going. That's the only one that I need no, for a second. No, no, and then you're no. like, no, let's bring it back a little bit. No, I, I, yeah. I, my wife insists that the Pandora's box version is the best, but for me, it's meatloaf. Wow. I'm going to need to go and listen to both of them. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I've only ever heard the Celine version. The big power ballad. I'm going to go listen oh no, to meat, meat, Meatloaf's is best. Is is the best, definitely. Um, and actually, now that I think about it as well, that's such a ridiculous song to walk out to at a tennis tournament. I think it would have to be that. <laughs> um, nice. Can you tell us uh, tell us a bit of interesting chat from the Outlander set that no one else would know about? Hmm. Salacious gossip, uh, Stephen. Gossip. Oh my God. <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be gossip. We can take no, that no, no. <laughs> uh, um, I'm trying to think of like anything. I'm trying to think of did anything interesting happen uh, last year? The oh God, I'm so like I, I wish I had something instantly uh, to to tell you about, but I can't think of. I can't so what, what you're saying is everyone's a bunch of golden bastards. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Basically, yeah. It's all like everyone's very well behaved. It's all very professional. Um, everyone, uh, you know, everyone behaves themselves and just get on with it. There was no, in fact, you know, and I've dotted in and out of Outlander over the years. So I'm never on it. Like the longest I'm ever on it is for like one or two months. But it actually has always been the a very well behaved uh cast indeed it's not like a mad partying cast or stuff like you know there's some jobs i've done mm-hmm. um there was a job actually funny enough when i was working in glasgow 
uh, five years, just over five years ago, on a film called Outlaw King um, about Robert the Bruce. Uh, Chris Pine played Robert the Bruce in it, and we were filming and we were stayed at the Dakota in uh, in Glasgow. Um, and like that, that film was like that was like a throwback to when you read about films of the Richard Burton and the Peter O'Toole and stuff. That was debauchery off no, really? the charts. And I was like, yeah, and there was like, you know, horse riding. There were there were actors rolling into set and like going on horses for huge big battle scenes, having been up all night, like not slept a wink and stuff. <laughs> that was the not me, I hasten to add. Um, but that was like uh uh, that was because you don't really see that as much now. People just are better behaved now. You don't get away with it, I think. But um, that was definitely like you know when you read old stories of Richard Burton, uh, Richard Burton disappearing for three days, you know, and being found. Chris Pine? No, Chris Pine, like, no, Chris Pine. No, Chris Pine. Chris Pine's very, very, very. Chris Pine definitely loves to have a good time, but he's very uh, professional, and mm. um, you know, showed up. There were just a lot of parties during the course of making that, but. One night we were at the Dakota, and one of those the and one of the Andy Murray charity matches was on in Glasgow. Oh yeah, the ones that he did at the Hydro. Yeah, yeah, and apparently it and he was. It, people were like, "Oh, he's staying at the hotel," and I was like, "What? Andy Murray staying at the hotel?" And they were like, "Yeah," and I was like, "What? The, what at this hotel?" And I was like, "Fuck, I'm gonna have to like," and I was like, "Because I've always wondered this as well. What would you do like if I met him?" What would I say? I don't like, if I ever met him, I would want to meet him in some sort of context of maybe I'm at a, I'm at something, I don't know, a fucking event or there's something where he just happens to be there and I'm at, like, I'm somehow getting into conversation because otherwise I don't know, if I did just meet him randomly and all I said was, hey, how you doing? But I also couldn't, you couldn't suddenly pour out with, uh, I think you're fucking amazing. I thought you were fucking amazing since 2005. <laughs> I watched you in this. I watched you in this. I just fucking love everything that you stand for. Uh, can you tell me about, you know, it's like, what would you? What, I, I think, to be honest, right, I think if you said those exact words to Andy, he'd absolutely love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, maybe. Come on, yeah. Maybe. But I um, I think I would probably clam up because we went, I went out for dinner uh, this night and I got back to the hotel and some of the cast were in the bar bit. And they were like, man, you just missed Judy Murray. And I was like, what? And they're like, Judy Murray came down the stairs. And one of the guys that she recognized, James Cosmo, was in the film. And she came over and said, oh, what are you all doing? And they said, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this movie. So she sat down and apparently spoke to them for like an hour. And I was like, fuck. I was like, and none of you even really care about tennis. Like, none of you are even bothered. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I got into the elevator to go up to my room. And the elevator doors opened and Judy Murray was standing there. And this is Judy Murray, by the way, not even Andy. And the doors opened and I just went. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Made it instantly instantly awkward. And she just sort of like nodded. I follow her on, I follow her on Twitter. I I like her tweets. Oh, and back when like blue verified, because you're like a verified tick, you would you'd notice that stuff. I don't think it matters anymore because Twitter's gone mad, but I'd like like her tweets and like comment sometimes and stuff like, hey Judy, notice me. <laughs> I'm a fan of your son. <laughs> and I go, I did a left. 
it just sort of stood there and and then I sort of I just was like no I was like hmm <laughs> I made a noise <laughs> and she was like and then I just I sort of like looked at the ground and I looked up at her and she sort of saw me looking at her and I was like I looked away again I was like oh fuck now I seem like I'm going to murder her or something this is really creepy and I sort of looked over again and she saw me looking at her and I was like uh I said, this is my, uh, but then I just got off. I was like, fuck. Oh my God. So that's like, <laughs> that's Andy Murray's mum, and I couldn't even muster up. Hi, how, how are, are you? you? <laughs> Hi, how are you? Uh, my, wife, my wife actually has got her photo taken with Judy Murray at the Scottish Baptist once. She sent it to me that year, and she said, look who I'm with. And so... To be, to be fair, like I actually do that around Judy as well, and like we've interviewed her, I've met her a few times, and I still do that. I'm terrified of her because I just, I, I every time I see her, I get all tongue tied, and I don't know what to say to her. And so I've now just like, whenever I see her, I just stop. I've just stopped speaking. I just kind of wave because I'm so scared that I'm going to say it, something stupid. It's really hard, I think, and it depends on that. I'm actually lucky. I have met my my childhood hero. Uh, when I was 12 or 13, I saw the movie of Jesus Christ Superstar and uh, the musical, and that's what made me want to be uh, an actor. And the guy that played Jesus is a guy called Ted Neely. This actually ties in with Andy Murray, weirdly. Um, the guy that plays um, Jesus is a guy called Ted Neely. That was in 1973. Uh, he's now in his 70s, and he still plays Jesus in concerts around the world. Uh, and... I think it was 2016, it was before my daughter was born. They were doing a, a concert of Jesus Christ Superstar in Rome. And Ted Neely was playing Jesus. I think he was like 69 or something at that point. And uh, I said to my wife, I was like, fuck, I really want to go to that. And she said, well, like, you know, you, you can go on your own. I'm, I, I don't have any interest in going. <laughs> but she was like, I think you should go. I think you should do it. And I was like, is that not a bit sad, though, going all the way to Italy? You know, and she was like, that's the guy that, you know, that, that if I don't think that's sad at all. Why not do it? And I was like, OK, so I got tickets. I went over and um, I got there a day early and Andy was playing in the, I think this is the correct year. Uh, Andy was playing in the um, Rome Open yep. uh, against uh, Fognini. And I managed to get tickets for that. And he got beat, actually. And it was funny because I got I got tickets really close to the court. And it's quite a small court there. And uh, he was... Uh, so my battery is running low. Uh, he was so pissed off. Like, he played quite badly in the second set. And I was quite close. And you, and you could just... He was giving it the full... Fuck! Is that, is that when he told Fanini to shut up? Possibly. I know, that was in uh, okay. Shanghai, right? Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah that was, it was much later on. Um, it definitely yeah. got heated. And uh, and anyway, so I went to see Jesus Christ Superstar and through some strange quirk of um, luck, um, I met his daughter after the show and she and got chatting to her and told her that I'd come over from London and that, you know, um, I had done musicals myself. And she was like, look, you want to meet him later on? He's... He meets all these fans at the end, but then you can come and have a drink with him if you want. So then later on, I went and met him. And because she had introduced me, 
he just sort of sat, like, we sat down on the side of the curb outside the theatre and basically just spoke for like two hours. And he just told me, cool. it was so cool. And it was also, it was like, it was dead easy. And mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it didn't feel weird or, or anything. And actually, uh, it, just because of the sort of like the circumstances um, um, of it. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that I imagine Andy Murray wants to sit on a curb at 12 o'clock uh, midnight <laughs> in Rome and speak to me for two hours about his life and career. <laughs> I always have these, I play out these scenarios in my head that like the time comes when I get to meet him properly, when I can have a discussion with him. <laughs> and we just have these, we have this like amazing, amazing chat about things. And it, it ends with him offering me a job as his director of communications at 77 Management. That's how, that's always how it plays out in my head. And then in actual fact, when the time came that I did meet him, I couldn't even figure out how to work my phone to take a picture. So that sort of, that's sort of how it went for, for me and Andy. Peter's got a much better relationship with him. Um, I think Peter's like, oh, really? actually, yeah, because he's met him a few times. Okay. Uh, actually at the tournament so and, and he recognizes you now doesn't he yeah just oh, wow. a little bit um at indian wells he's uh thrown up the peace sign at me just uh as i've uh seen him practice quite a bit and of course whenever he practices i stay for an hour two hours just watching him practice because i love watching practices period mm. but i mm. mean with andy murray it's just amazing so yeah um, I would like to know a little bit more about uh, your acting um, uh, uh, career. Um, you've uh, had wonderful cast members to work alongside, including Anna Friel in Deepwater. What was that experience like working with her? Um, yeah, the silence will say everything there, I think. Okay. Okay. She we, seems think, a little hard nose. It was it, it was a it was a learning curve. A okay. Steep, no. A steep learning curve. I still know what you were expecting, Peter. Okay, <laughs> let's let's move on to Teresa Palmer. I mean, you've worked with her twice, uh, yeah. and I mean, uh, both times have been amazing, especially with uh, you as Gallo Glass in a mm. Discovery of Witches. Mm. Well, what was that like? Yeah, Teresa's uh, Teresa was brilliant. Discovery of Witches was particularly good fun um, because get like the the character I had in Discovery of Witches was a really Galaglass was a really fun, really upbeat and um, sort of gregarious character as well, which makes it just it's more enjoy it, it's a lot easier to be more enjoyable uh, on set um, when you're not like because it's not like I don't. Um, I was going to say, there's, I think like, outside of acting, there's a lot of people, you know, that idea of being a method actor or whatever is sort of something that I don't, is I think often misunderstood, but also um, different jobs require different sort of methods or, or, or styles or whatever anyway. But I find that sometimes when you're playing, like in the, the film that we did in Estonia, playing the twin, that was a uh-huh. far more de- depressing. And, you know, the characters, it's even though it's a horror, it's kind of like an exploration of grief of these parents who have lost their child. So it just wasn't as fun going into work each day. It was like a really, all the scenes were pretty heavy and serious and 
depressing. Um, so it's a harder, um, it just sometimes that kind of seeps into you um, a little bit. I have to say, she, like, Teresa, when we did that in Estonia, and it was fucking freezing. It was like minus 30 degrees centigrade some days. She was four or five months pregnant. I think when we did that, and it's her three children out there as well. It's just like such a um, trooper uh, and machine. The same on uh, Discovery of Witches as well. Just always very, very um, upbeat uh, and, and positive and, uh, and and really good fun. Wow. She sounds like nice. more fun than Anna anyway. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> Anna has played uh, a few roles that have not been, I guess, uh, as fun, just definitely, as you're saying, uh, very, uh, a little depressing with uh, Marcella and whatnot. Um, but you have a, a new uh, show coming out fairly soon, mm -hmm. The Diplomat. Yeah. Can you tell us yeah. about that? Uh, yeah, so Diplomat, uh, that's the one I was filming in Barcelona last summer. Um, it has Sophie Rundle. Um, is The Diplomat, and it's Sophie, people who listen to this might know her from Peaky Blinders, or she was uh, in Bodyguard, she played Richard Madden's wife, um, she's, gosh, she's been in loads of stuff, she was in G Gentleman Jack, uh, which was a big success, I think in the States as well as the UK actually, uh, and it also has uh, an amazing uh, Spanish actress called Laia Costa, who won the Goya last week, which is basically Spanish Oscar. Uh, for best actress, um, and it's so it's set in Barcelona. Sophie Rundle plays um, a diplomat at the British consulate, and her job is to kind of deal with various distressed British nationals, so British people who are in Barcelona and get into trouble. You know, like get too drunk and get arrested or lose their passport or whatever. I mean, it's a bit more exciting than that. That's for the for the drama, but I think that's. That's what distressed British nationals are. Uh, and so each week, there's a sort of, there's a different British national getting into some sort of trouble that she has to try and sort out. But running through the whole series um, is this um, overarching story um, where she discovers uh, a, a kind of crime syndicate that is going on in Barcelona, but kind of has tentacles spreading out through through Europe, and uh, and I play, I am, my character's name is Sam Henderson, and I came in at the start of episode one as the new consul at the British consulate. I'm her boss, essentially, um, and we clash straight away, but also you kind of learn very early on that I'm not necessarily who I say I am. Okay. Um, so Intrigue. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully that will be intriguing. Uh, to to keep watching and um, I, I I absolutely loved making it. Barcelona is an incredible city, like a, a phenomenal city, um, and I love the scripts and I love the story. And I think um, I think it will be. Actually, I don't know how it will be. You never know. But um, I'm really happy with you know with how it turned out. Um, you never know how things are going to be received. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I think it's uh, fun uh, how you were received, at least here in the States with uh, Gallo Glass. Uh, mm. And uh, it was amazing to see you uh, partner with Teresa again with the twins. So 
It was mm. an interesting ride watching that movie. Yeah. I mean, I, st- I, I still don't know if the... Like, did you see the twist? Because I, I still don't... Like, I never really... I, 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 really, like, I, I think they did a great job with that film, and I think it looks uh-huh. fantastic. And I, I loved the director, Tannelly, and stuff. I never... Like, from the very start, I... I wasn't sure about the reveal moment, you know, when I have to, I always feel a bit when you get to the end of the movie and then like one of the characters has to basically explain the whole movie for you. Uh I always think, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I love that. I felt like I was worried and not to criticize it anyway, but I was worried that it was a little bit Scooby-Doo at the ending. And one of the reviews, one of the reviews for it, actually said um and then we get into the final third of the movie and it basically becomes (laughs) (laughs) scooby-doo i mean it definitely was a twist that i was not expecting so well that's good i mean that's good then i'll say that yeah yeah that's good because if it was unexpected then that's you know that's great no it was a great opportunity i got the job but you know Teresa got me on that so um it was a great opportunity and a great um you know, learning curve for me as well. And I'd also, again, I, I really, really love horror movies as well. So getting the chance to do like what felt to me like a kind of old school American horror movie with the haunted, the kind of scary looking house and the station wagon and... And the scary um, kids, yeah. And the all scary kids. I mean, all the sort of horror cliches, but uh, it felt like a... Um, on the very first day of that, when we rocked up and we saw that house and the station wagon and stuff, I thought, ah, this feels like one of the horror movies I used to love uh-huh. as a kid. Yep. Which, funnily enough, is one of the things some of the critics actually took exception to that because they're like, oh, here we go again. But I think with horror and with certain genres, that's what people want. You, you, you yeah. kind of take you have to you have like, some yeah. of that. Yeah, that's what I want to yeah. see. I want to see the creepy kids. I want to see the creepy house. Exactly. Uh, real I'm quick, since you, just listening to this. <laughs> since you mentioned uh, your friends with James McAvoy, do you have any little uh, tidbits about him? I'm <laughs> such a huge fan of his. Uh, I just he's a he's a great guy. You uh-huh. know, you'd, you'd, if you're a big fan, you'd really like him. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. Uh, he's uh, he's. Um, I don't know if this is a I don't know if this is a Scottish thing or not, and I'm only saying because Andy Murray seems to clearly have this as well, but. For somebody who's so successful uh, and and done so well and so revered by so many people as well, and um, he's very very grounded and has his feet firmly planted uh, on the ground. And on one hand, you could say, "Why wouldn't you?" Because you know we're all still just people at the end of the day. But I do see it in my industry uh, in particular when people start to become successful or famous. You get a lot of smoke blown up your arse mm-hmm. and you see it definitely going to some people's heads and people get spoiled and they get treated as being very special and better than other people and I think um, you know uh, it's testament to him that he's just uh, you know still just a wee guy from um, uh, uh, Glasgow yeah I think he's one of the greatest actors of our time I just absolutely love him I think he's brilliant I watch Anything that he's in, without a doubt, one of the best Scottish actors ever. Definitely, you know, yeah. I think that's without without question. Okay, on that note, we've got two final questions for you, Stephen, and then okay. I'm going to let you go. 
Do you think Andy Murray is going to win a title this year? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. If he does, if he does win a title, will you come mm-hmm. back on to discuss that with us? Yes, absolutely. Here we go. Got it. We've got it. We've got, got it on recording now. That's it. He's committed to coming back. <laughs> Can you, here's my question. Can you get me tickets for Wimbledon this year? <laughs> oh, do you know what? My my friend's partner works for the logistics company that does all the catering and the drinks cups and all that sort of snaz for Wimbledon. Um, and he gets two tickets every year. So if I decide not to take them, Stephen, I will let you know and you can have Thank you. Them. <laughs> Thank you. I actually used to have a great in. One of my friends, uh, her girlfriend, um, worked at Wimbledon and so she would always get me tickets for uh, like one of the first three days and actually Wimbledon kind of like the f- the first like day one and day two are one of the best times to go oh definitely when you just get to walk around and see it because I know it blew my mind the first time I went I was like what there's games there there's games that like, you can see them all at the same time um and I had a friend I had another friend who her dad, I think she was like, I think her dad had a debenture. Oh, yeah. Um, like one of the permanent seats or something. Yeah. Um, did she give me that one? I think I got that for one. I think I, got, I think the, the, the highest round match I've seen is a quarter final or something. But I think it was the year Murray got one of the years Murray got to the final. And I was like, please, like, can I, I will, is there, can I, is there any amount of money or is there anything I can do? I like it, but I can so well if if um I've still not managed to get tickets yet, but if I find myself with a spare, you will be the first person to I mean to obvi- <laughs> obviously there is just like the you know going on the lottery or queuing up uh mm-hmm. queuing up in the morning as well. I've just never I mean maybe that's maybe I'm not dedicated enough, but I've never fancied going and queuing up at like four AM. Well, see, no, yeah. I queued on Middle Sunday last year and it was fine. Mm. I only wanted to get down pass um, and I joined the queue at like half eight in the morning and I was in before play started at 11. So that was all fine. But I I don't like big crowds of people very much. I don't like having to stand No, around. neither do I. I'm the same. And, and, I get and, a bit claustrophobic. Yeah, so do I. And actually the queue is very well managed, but there is still like thousands of people around about you. Um and yeah, I'm the same. I just don't want to be there from four o'clock in the morning to to queue up. It's just that I'm an old lady who needs her sleep. <laughs> so I don't really I don't really fancy doing that either. Um but if you you know, someone who we find is always very lucky at getting his hands on tickets for standing around and not doing very much is Scott. Scott okay. manages somehow to get tickets for anything. Uh, okay. So um, if Scott gets tickets again this year, I'll be sure to let him know. I mean, Scott Great. got four grounds passes last year from Laura Robson, just purely, <laughs> purely by like good luck because she saw his tweet that he didn't get any Wimbledon wow. tickets. Him and thousands of other people, and she she sent him a direct message saying, "I know this is really random, but I'll send you grounds passes." So maybe even maybe even <laughs> get in touch with Laura Robson, Stephen. You never yeah. know. Maybe I I did one year ask I every now and again if for for t- uh, for a TV job or something I sometimes have a publicist that I use and not not that much but I asked her one year if I was like do you think there's any chance I could 
you know, could I get a ticket for Wimbledon, do you think? And she was like, um, I think it's normally people that, you know, that, and she was just sort of tactfully saying, basically, like, no, <laughs> you're like, you're, nobody knows who you are. So <laughs> I was like, I get that, I get that. But, you know, because I constantly see in the boxes up there, you'll always see, like, you know, actors that are there. And I'm like, there's no fucking way they're even tennis fans. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they there? At least invite, yep. you know, yep. hardcore tennis fans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what? We, we, here at Money Musings, we don't have a lot of clout, but we're going to do what we can, Stephen, to get, okay, thank you. To get you a Wimbledon ticket. And on thank that you. note, we're going to wrap it up um, for this evening. We've taken up so much of your time and we appreciate no it so, so much. Thank you Pleasure. for joining us. Um, we are hopefully going to have you back when Andy wins his whatever title it's going to be. Um, and we can talk about that. And to all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it. Stephen has given us some amazing Andy stories. Peter, it's been great to catch up with you again as well. I've been Claire. He's been Peter. And the star of the show has been Stephen Cree. That's Murray Musings over and out. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you've been listening to the Murray Musings podcast. <laughs>